Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, we've had some earnings uh, from the media space last night. Netflix reported some numbers. The stock is uh, down here today. Uh, let's break it out and see what's going on in the world of media. We do that with Geetha Raganathan. She is the senior media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, calling in from Princeton, New Jersey office, which is the HQ of Bloomberg Intelligence. So, uh, Geetha, talk to us about Netflix here. This is a story, they kind of miss numbers, but this is a story that it's not so much about subscribers anymore. It's about making money. How are they doing on that? They are making money, and it shouldn't be about subscribers anymore. I mean, this is why they've kind of gone away from you know, giving subscriber guidance. And the market itself has kind of said, you know, we don't really want you companies to be chasing subscriber growth at all costs. We really want you to focus on making money. And I think on that front, Netflix kind of delivered. They really delivered the goods when it came to mar- margins, when it came to operating profits, and especially when it came to free cash flow. So I think this reaction this morning in Netflix's stock, it's almost like the market is a little bipolar here. What is the story with password sharing? Um, is this something that they're actually going to be able to conquer or um, and is it going to be additive to revenue in the next quarter? It is going to be additive to revenue and I think potentially, you know, subscribers as well over the long term. But again, this is going to cause a lot of short term volatility because remember, when you're forcing, um, you know, subscribers to kind of pay up for that extra member for that extra account, there is going to be some initial resistance, there is going to be some, you know, initial backlash. And they've already kind of tested this out in a few markets. LATAM was the first area that they kind of implemented this and they did it in Canada, and a few other markets where, you know, they kind of saw the same trajectory, right? So, Uh, They are going to roll it out in the U.S., which by far is their biggest market. Uh, Out of the 100 global households who are not paying for a Netflix subscription, about 30% are in the U.S. So they need to do it. It's also their most profitable market. So they need to do it carefully. Uh, But again, they do expect a lot of volatility in the subscriber numbers, at least, uh, you know, in the second quarter and the third quarter. So they have said that, you know, expect the second half to be definitely much better than the first half. And then I think things definitely will settle down towards the end of the year. Keith, what are they saying in terms of programming investments here? If if the focus is increasingly on profitability, is this something they want to scale back, hold steady, or continue to increase this? I mean, it's, you know, it's, you know, 15, $20 billion or something of programming. 
Oh, absolutely. And so they had said that they were going to hold programming expenses in like the $17 billion zip code uh, from like 2022 to, through 2024. Um, what's happening this year is actually that number has come down quite a bit. So they said, you know, about maybe 16, closer to 16, 16.4 billion for 2023, which is why we're kind of seeing that uptick in free cash flow. They raised their free cash flow guidance, but then they are going to go back to the $17 billion next year. And the way that they kind of framed this yes, uh, last night during the call was that, you know, it's not just going to be, you know, TV shows. It's not just going to be movies. It's just the broader entertainment space. So think of, you know, gaming, going into other genres, maybe even sports programming. Who knows? So they're kind of keeping all their options open at this point. Yeah, sports programming has to be huge, right? I mean, at least I know that all of the people in this radio studio right now would probably take advantage of that. But it also seems to be an expensive business. Isn't that where, you know, Disney is losing all the money? Yeah, it is a very, very expensive business. Disney spends over $10 billion every year in sports rights. And that has been the huge problem for them. And all of these media companies, I mean, if you look at the major media companies, they're spending upwards of about 25 to $26 billion every year on just sports fees. And, and if, if, we, if we've looked at some of the recent renewals, they've been up over 50 to 70% has been kind of the average increase in some of those, you know, rights fees. So obviously this is very, very expensive. Netflix doesn't want to necessarily go into it because I don't think they see a return on investment. I think sports really makes sense for them if their advertising business kind of takes off in a big way because you do need kind of a huge live captive audience to support, uh, you know, viewership to kind of support that spend. Um, so maybe it's down the line. I don't I don't see them doing anything uh, quite transformative yet, uh, just yet. But again, never say never. With with all the court cutting, Geetha, I mean, we, we've been saying this for decades about the sports rights. They can't keep going up at this rate, but they always do. But with court cutting, you could make the argument that the business model is just not there anymore. So do you expect to see some of these big sports rights, even like NFL, to go to where the money is, like a Google, like a Facebook, like an Amazon or an Apple? It already has, partly, hasn't it, Paul? Because, you know, Amazon has Thursday night football. We saw kind of YouTube TV snag um, the Sunday ticket package. So it's kind of going in, in, you know, trickling down bits and pieces. The major packages, though, are still on broadcast television and, and will remain there till 2032. Um, so at least for another decade, I think we have the TV rights in place. That said, I mean, you know, we do have some other big deals kind of coming up. The NBA is one that's going to be up uh, after 2024. Again, there's a lot of, you know, speculation, a lot of buzz about whether Disney is really going to want to pay up for that or whether, you know, an Amazon or, or an Apple or somebody else kind of swoops in. So it's still pretty, uh, you know, it's all it's all fair game. But big tech definitely wants to make, uh, you know, a big play for sports. There's no doubt about that. You've been covering this uh, sector for years, Keitha, but I don't know how much content you actually consume. Are there any shows, any good shows out there that you like? I, I watch The Love is Blind. Uh, oh, my God. I said I mean, good shows. It's a great show. What are you talking about? The guilty pleasure. <laughs> hey, Keitha, just switching gears real quick. Uh, Fox Corporation settled with, uh, I guess, for $787 million. They settled with Dominion Voting Machines from Fox News. Stocks off 2.8%. Do investors care? Uh, uh, do Fox investors really care about that? Not really. I mean, at the end of the day, they had $4 billion in cash. Um, you know, they have this accelerated share repurchase program going. And Fox News, I mean, I, I know why they did this. They kind of, I, I guess, wanted to, pre you know, prevent embarrassment for yeah, some of their biggest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for us for to really know what goes on behind <laughs> 
for the Murdochs and yeah. probably for some of their biggest anchors. But at the end of the day, it's just it's really just a blip. I mean, Fox News is really the cash cow. Yep. Um, it's the crown jewel of the Fox Empire. It throws off about two and a half, three billion dollars in EBITDA every wow. year. It's seventy five percent of the of the company's profits. So it just shows you how much they care about uh, Tucker Carlson and Hannity. Hannity, can you imagine? Paul, if um, you and I got sued and Bloomberg <laughs> paid $800 million right. to... Yeah, uh, I'm not sure I'd see that coming. Wow. All right, Geetha, thank you so much for joining us. Geetha Raganathan, she covers media for Bloomberg Intelligence. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get to our next guest. Let's talk ETFs. Um, David Mann, head of global ETF market and capital markets for Franklin Templeton, joins us. David, you know, I've been on Wall Street since the mid-'80s, and one of the greatest and most interesting developments has been the growth of ETFs, it's just amazing the money that goes into exchange-traded funds. It's kind of the, the mutual fund of my youth. Um, where's the money going these days with this level of uncertainty in the marketplace? Where's the money in the ETF space going these days? Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm, I'm still processing the Chick-fil-A comment, so. Um. Oh yeah, <laughs> we're still eating, so don't worry about us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we've seen um, uh, a pretty broad Amount of inflows, I think, for the for the industry. Uh, I mean, more broadly speaking, you're right. Every year seems to be either another record or close to another record in terms of the hundreds of billions. And even when things seem slower uh, from a market's pr perspective, we're still seeing um, inflows into ETFs over 100 billion so far. Um, you know, when when I sort of look at our lineup against the broader context of the ETF industry, I, I see a pretty steady flow into you know, market cap passive, those big benchmarks are still seeing flows, but you know, you're also seeing flows into uh, active funds. Those are starting to get more, more, um, more traction, especially uh, in the back of the ETF rule. And then somewhere in between, you know, we've called it rules-based, we've called it smart beta, but you know, the, the, the index um, structure with some different rules than market cap weighted also seem to be gathering uh, assets. So I think the systematic, you know, the bigger Yes, systematic, exactly. So I think the bigger takeaway is, I think now that investors are just very comfortable with the ETF wrapper, there's now more conversations about, hey, I can get lots of different exposures within that vehicle. 
Um, so let's have a conversation. So specifically, um, I mean, yeah, active is huge. And that's what we talk about all the time on the ETF IQ show. But uh, we had seen a ton of inflows to ultra short treasury ETFs and um, outside of ETFs into money markets as well. Has that calmed down or reversed a little bit? I mean, that was all due to the banking um, I don't want to say crisis. What were you saying? Uh, turmoil. Turmoil. Yeah. Banking turmoil. Uh, has, has that turned around to a point where we can say that's in the rearview mirror? I think I think a little bit in the rearview mirror. I mean, when the when the uh, I guess if turmoil is the term, when the turmoil uh, uh, um, banking turmoil hit, you know, a lot of the questions we were getting uh, here at Franklin was sort of, hey, tell us about our exposure to these, you know, Silicon Valley Bank or or First Republic, et cetera, and uh, you know, specifically, hey, how much of the weights are those stocks in these in these indices? And, you know, back to my, uh, you know, sort of my market cap versus uh, systematic or rules bases, you know, a lot of a lot of the a lot of U.S. equities have didn't hold those names for a variety of screening reasons, you know, when, when whether factor methodologies or or other types of, uh, you know, income or other screens. So. Uh, those were the questions we were getting, but yeah, I think I think you 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 touched on a broader point, which is if, if ETFs are tactical vehicles, um, and whether it's an opinion on what the tech sector will do, or the U.S. equity market's going to do, or where rates are going to go, there's going to be a vehicle that will um, give you that option, and then you and then the flows usually bear that out. Uh, for sure. I mean. We're talking about yeah, ten trillion dollars <laughs> worth of assets globally, exactly. and growing as you as you pointed out at a tremendous clip. By the way, you come to Franklin Templeton from one of the you know ETF duopolies. How do you see that structure? Is it a problem that you know Vanguard and BlackRock and State Street as well? You know, kind of dominate this market? Is it changing? Is there a point when we're going to see more um, uh, more players with a with a bigger role? So I, I, a couple thoughts come to mind. Uh, the first the first conversation, which is um, maybe not even specific to the names of the of those of, of those issuers, but there's just a general um, a lot of investors use counting stats when keeping scores and what that ends up meaning is big funds tend to get bigger um and so you know comment one and i and i don't know if this is going to be ever explicit regulations changing or different mindset but um you know i can tell you that we have conversations where the only reason that an investor is not using is because they have some percent ownership limit on the size of the fund and they would love to use ours except they want to do X and X would be too big given the size of the fund. So I think that's, you know, from a cap markets lens, we will always have the, um, uh, you know, the liquidity conversation. But certainly, um, I think investors get that. I think investors like having options. Uh, you know, if I look at our inflows to year, we're batting above our, um, you know, percent of assets um, um, uh, of the total pie. So I think we just, you know, keep highlighting our our, our lineup. But the, you know, the 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 size as a way to keep score is is sometimes challenging. All right, so let's talk about your lineup. What do you have to offer investors? Uh, sure. Yeah. So so you know, as I touched on at the very beginning, 
you know, we have passive uh, funds, we have uh, the smart beta funds, we have active funds. Um, I'll start actually in the middle this year. I would say the um, the rules-based um, approaches have been uh, quite popular. Our low vol, high div um, uh, duo, that's uh, LVHD and LVHI. Uh, year to date, they've combined for over 300 million. Those are low vol, high div strategies. Um, you know, in the income space, because that's something that we, we've heard um, uh, over and over again, uh, we launched a core dividend suite, which, um, you know, call it, you know, uh, aware of the benchmarks, but with a tilt towards uh, income. And, you know, given this particular market cycle where growth stocks and tech stocks have really shown, um, a lot of dividend strategies have really been underperforming and ours have been, uh, you know, because of that awareness to the benchmark, those have been doing great. So that ticker is uh, DIVI, Divi, uh, for our international core dividend suite. And, you know, lastly, um, you know, we launched a, a whole suite of single country passive uh, uh, ETFs benchmark to FTSE. Uh, those are meant to be very, very low cost uh, options to get exposure to uh south korea to uk to japan etc and uh, and those have been really doing great i mean a lot of international markets are really strong so far this year and so for investors to be able to get that specific uh exposure to a single country at a very low uh, low cost point has been great so uh tickers like flkr fljp fltw have seen close to 100 million or more of inflows this year david one of the areas that's been fascinating to me is mutual funds converting to etfs could you just give us your commentary on that part of the market. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, the the when you know at Franklin we converted two towards the end of last year. That was a um, um, a Brandywine uh, Dynamic Value DVAL and Martin Curry uh, MCSE are those two tickers. Uh, and yeah, I mean it, it, we have obviously a. <laughs> hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars of active mutual funds, we're, we're looking to see what makes the most sense to move into an ETF vehicle. A lot will depend on the track record, the size. Uh, does it fit nicely into the ETF vehicle in terms of transparency? And and those are conversations we're, we're repeatedly having. Um, we're, we scheduled one more uh, for later this year that's that's been filed, and, and we'll continue to explore uh, where it makes sense. In terms of the uh, best returns, I see um, uh, uh, there are funds here that have just uh, gotten into this sort of tech innovation side. Um, is that a blip you think of Q1 or will that continue? Um, yeah, I, I, w I, wish, uh, I wish I had that type of uh, foresight to know which, <laughs> which are gonna be the, the yeah. highest performers or which not. Um, you know, it's funny, I was actually reviewing our league table and i think the uh you know uh, intelligent machines which was one of our active factor funds was yep. right around 20 percent but so was uh single country mexico and single country france um so i i wish i knew which way that was going to go um but You'd i mean it's certainly been a somewhere. Star for the tech, yeah, yeah, exactly. for the tech sector all right david thank you so much uh, for taking the time and joining us david man head of global ETF market and capital markets for Franklin Templeton. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The tune
TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We've got central banks around the world raising rates. It's not just the Federal Reserve folks. It's the Bank of England. It's the European Central Bank. And a lot of folks are concerned about what that means for economic growth going forward for the remainder of this year going into next year. So let's check in with a professional who does this stuff for a living. Dr. Vanya Stravra-Keva, professor of economics at the London Business School. Um, thank you so much for joining us, professor, here. Give us a sense of how the economy is. Let's, let, let's start right in, in, in your backyard there in the UK. How's the economy in the UK? What's the outlook? So thank you very much for having me. Uh, so we just got the latest numbers for inflation and it appears the demand is quite strong still in the UK, which creates um, a headache for the central bank in many ways. It's important to put the recent numbers in context. And there are two major differences between the current and previous tightening uh, cycles in the UK. So the first one is that even after tightening, it's important to notice that real interest rates are still negative in the UK and uh, in other countries. So if we, for example, use realized rather than expected inflation to, me to measure the real rate, we have a negative real rate close to minus 6%. That is a very negative number. So this is if we use the CPI index. So we have something called the Taylor rule, which is our standard optimal monetary policy rule that tells us what should be the optimal policy rate. And at the moment, it's telling us that for the UK, we need to be at 10% while we are at 4.25%. And that is if I use the core CPI inflation rather than um, the actual CPI inflation. Of course, you know some have um, uh, proposed justifications as to why this time is different and there's no need to tighten so aggressively. Um, so for example, of course, we know that the shock is um, a supply shock, the original um, uh, shock, which is assumed to be transitory. Inflation expectations have remained well anchored, which is given a pause to central bank for central bankers in terms of hiking further. Um, so these have made central bankers essentially more hesitant to follow the Taylor rule. Um, and it have it might have um, and it's been used to justify uh, why they have an increased interest rates uh, further. Um, however, it, it, will, it will need further hikes in order to reach the 2% um, interest rate, and it can be seen from the fact that real rates are still very negative. There is another major problem in the UK, uh, which is less present. Sorry, than, can I just, uh, doctor, can I just hang on there? Because I'm so happy you brought up the Taylor rule. Yeah. And we have on the you Bloomberg are. a tool um, that helps us fill that out, T-A-Y-L. T-A-Y-L go on the Bloomberg terminal. Are you serious? Yeah, it's so awesome. Put the drop down menu into United Kingdom. Okay. I changed um, the inflation metric to core CPI. That's what you're you're using. Um, what do you put? I always struggle with two variables. What do you use for your neutral real rate for our? I use one. I use 1.5. 1.5. And what do you use for um, Nehru for the uh, non? 4.5. Sorry? 4.5. I use 4.5. 4.5. I think it's so fascinating, um, A, this tool. Can you tool. explain what the Taylor rule is for us neophytes? So, doctor, yeah. can, can you explain the, the Taylor rule? Because yeah. I've got a new function here that Matt just turned me on to, but I don't know what I'm doing. So, so the Taylor rule is fascinating. I mean, I will explain what it is, but some people, um, such as Powell, think it's outdated. So you need to take it with a grain of <laughs> But essentially, the Taylor rule comes of our big optimal monetary policy models, and it's telling us what should central bankers optimally set the policy rate to. So it's taking into account, you know, our our big DSG models that have, uh, you know, optimal monetary policy embedded in them. 
Um, and once we solve these complicated models, we get a very simple rule. And that is essentially called a Taylor. It's, it's essentially, it's a function of something called the real rate or the natural real rate, uh, which is kind of the steady state long run real growth of the economy. It has been falling over time due to the secular secu stagnation. It used to be 2%. Now people think it's about 1.5%. Um, of course, it's a function of the inflation target, which is 2%, and realized inflation relative to inflation target and the unemployment rate relative to the natural rate of unemployment. There are debates and, uh, regarding how we should calibrate it, how much weight central banks are putting um, on the output gap relative to inflation, the inflation target. There is heterogeneity across countries. But the point is that it's a very useful tool. And actually, particularly for the US, if you plot it going back in town, even before the concept existed, you would see that even in the 70s and the 80s, the US followed the Taylor rule very closely. It is the first time in history where we're see seeing such major deviations on the upside, of course, during the zero lower bound. The table rules was telling us that we should be at minus four percent and because of the zob we couldn't but when we're talking about you know hikes is the first time in history that central banks are deviating so much from the table rule. now even in the u.s i want to point out so if i plug in your r starred and uh nehru numbers in the u.s i show the estimate the tail and even if i uh give them a three percent inflation target because yeah. I, I think we all know they're not really sticking nice. that close to two. They're still at eight. They should still be at 8% yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. And so my question is then, if we should be at 8% in the U.S., we should be at 10% in the U.K., according to the Taylor rule. Does that mean you think the Fed should and the BOE should really go there? Because obviously going there quickly would cause a lot of problems. Exactly. You can't go there quickly. You have to be gradual and you have to see how the effect changes. Of course, we know there are issues with our models, right? So we are aware that a lot of the aspects of our models are outdated. For example, we still assume rational expectations in, in these models that derive the table rule. Um, now there is a push in economic research that acknowledges that agents are not rational and we're trying to figure out how to embed this irrationality in the models. So there's fascinating research going on there. And I think they're doing the right thing to be gradual, but also at the same time, the real rate matters. Right. The real rate is telling us effectively if you're a company and you're deciding, OK, you know, how much they produce, how much they invest, you're calculating at, at what inflation you can increase your prices and what is the cost you need to pay to the bank to repay your loan. So if you're borrowing even at five percent, if you're factoring inflation of 10 percent in the UK, it's still good terms. Right. You still borrow it. for. It's a very good point. Very... So it's the real rate that drives our economic models, and that's what matters for the real economy. And everyone is focusing too much on the nominal rate, which is uh, effectively not not the right metric. Uh, so in that sense, I think banks, central banks, might have to go further. And and the main reason why is at this point the supply shock is uh, essentially calming down. However, demand, the demand shock, uh, the demand component of inflation is very persistent. Um, and, and that's to a large degree for the UK, particularly for due to wage inflation, and the UK is unique. I believe that the wage inflation problem will be much more severe for the UK because we are coming out of decades of stagnation of public sector wages due to austerity. People are tired, doctors are tired, teachers are tired. We see it in the strikes. And it's what's interesting when you see when they're negotiating, they're not quoting just the latest inflation numbers. They're quoting decades of austerity that have led to their real wages deteriorating. And this is a very different story from some other countries that haven't had the same period of austerity that the, the, right. the UK. So I, I expect a much more persistent period of strikes. Moreover, there is Brexit, Brexit and labor mm. shortages due to it. And we have NHS being broken, yep. leading to chronic illnesses and 400,000 people mm. not returning to the labor force. So the UK is actually in the worst shape out of all the countries. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Having said that, it will take time even for the U.S. Yep. and Europe yep. to go back, maybe even 3%, as you said, probably not even 2%. Right. Fascinating. Uh, Fascinating and- stuff. Dr. Uh, Stavrakeva, thank you so much for joining us. We could go on, and I hope we can get you back as soon as possible because I, I really think that's uh, exciting insight there. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about some bank stocks. We've had uh, some of the big bank names report. We've had some of the smaller names uh, report as well, and it kind of goes to the issue. I think what a lot of folks were focusing on, are focusing on during this earnings season with the banks is not so much what they're reporting right now, but just kind of the outlook for their business, some basic stuff like deposits is there a, you know, you know, just kind of base banking 101 accounting. Herman Chan joins us here. He, he covers the uh, regional banks. Herman, just given what we've seen so far, what's your takeaway from this U.S. banking system in terms of its general health? Yeah, the overall banking system looks fine. It's healthy. We're seeing some deposit outflow, but that's natural given the state of where interest rates are and you have better alternatives and money market funds. But you have a certain a certain amount of folks um, of banks that are still in the crosshairs, like First Republic and Back West. But overall, everybody that's reported from the large cap regional bank side has, has shown a lot of stability, which is great to see. What are we? What I want to know is what are we seeing in terms of uh, savings account or checking uh, checking accounts, interest rates. Mm-hmm. Apple came out with Goldman Sachs, right. and they're offering four point one nine percent, and I think four percent is probably the bar that banks have to to meet in order to impress me now or <laughs> the average American depositor. I know that Americans are more likely to leave their wives uh, or husbands than change their bank accounts. Right. But I think that has changed drastically this year. So are they going to all have to offer at least 4%? That's not going to be the case. Um, you're seeing banks well, then I'm out. seed some deposits. <laughs> But they're they're expecting uh, a lot of their remaining customers to to be stable. It takes a lot of effort and time and energy to change your your bank, but you can move some of your money into a high yield savings account, which you know, a lot of these regional banks do offer. But um, they're not going to reprice their entire portfolio. That's not going to be how they they manage deposit costs and funding and. Because if they did that, they would j- basically just crater their, their net interest margins. Is there a great way get. to compare banks' rates, the rates that they have mm-hmm. on offer? I mean, I just pull up Huntington, which is where mm-hmm. I uh, bank, and I look on their website. As of April 19th, which mm-hmm. is today, I'm looking at rates uh, depending on ha- whether you have 2500 in with them or, uh, look, $99 billion in with them that – have a 0.0 in front of all of the numbers. And that's right. for your bank? That's 0.01, your money is. <laughs> 0.02, 0.06. That's if you have a private client account. That's not enough. By 400 basis points, how can they get away with it? Why do I leave my money there, Herman? <laughs> that's a question you should ask yourself. Um, you go to bankrate.com and you can see the, the menu of, of offerings. Um, 4.25% for citizens, which which just reported today. So that's a good litmus test of what's out there. C- CIT Bank, that's that's the first uh, first citizens bank that bought SVB. That's 4.75%. So you can get deals. How about, what, what are we seeing in terms of 
loan growth. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there was concern that if there, if there was concern there on the deposits, and I go down to my local bank to get a loan, I might not be able to get it. Or yeah, good terms. question. What Paul. are we seeing? That's right. So there was some commentary on the call today um, for citizens, for example. They said they're tightening the screws on underwriting because of, yep. of their funding is declining, and they expect to see. You know, economic weakness down the down the road so that's something that we've talked about that that could be occurring across the system and and banks like citizens have confirmed that on their earnings call but credit crunch is a term that's been increasingly used over the past Mm -hmm. two or three weeks i'm going to say like three weekends ago neil kashkari was on one of the sunday shows and said right that's a concern and now everyone's starting to look at it um the fact that you know even if you're willing to pay 7% or whatever on a car loan, even if you have an 800 um, credit rating or credit score, you're still not able to get the loan, Right, is what we're hearing from a lot of Americans. Is this gonna be a problem uh, for, for banks? Is this gonna be a problem for the US economy? It's gonna slow down loan growth. A lot of that is self-induced because they wanna protect themselves and don't wanna create tail risk from a credit quality perspective. So. Uh, and that does have implications for, for economic growth and the trajectory of, of you know, credit availability is one of the big factors of how, how our U.S. economy grows. And if, if availability is softened, then that definitely has implications. Are banks going to or, or have they started taking more reserves for potentially a, a recessionary economy? Are, they, are you seeing that in the results? It's come up um, marginally. Um, I would say that the big factor, the big issue that, that the big bogey across the industry in this quarter was the focus on commercial real estate. And you've seen a lot of the banks increase their reserves specifically to the commercial real estate portfolio. Some of the banks like M&T are seeing some modest charge offs related to to those office property exposures. So it's, it's something that will be longer tailed and, and banks are prepared for it. So, um, there's continues to be some headline risk, uh, given the fact that you have Are there some, some banks that have exposure to the, what I consider, and not knowing anything about real estate, but mm-hmm. just the office real estate markets in New York and San Francisco and LA and things like that, are there banks that are ex- particularly exposed there? Yeah, uh, the, it's part of the portfolio, you know, banks like, uh, m and have some exposure, banks like in your community, but all in all, it's part of a broader portfolio. And you're talking about office real estate that's you know, 15, 10, 15, 20% of the overall commercial real estate portfolio. So everything's pretty diversified, but you're going to see some lumpiness going ahead. Yeah. So that must be interesting as an analyst. You have to look at their real estate loans mm-hmm. and break them out into what's you know, student housing, right. medical Multiple centers, apartments, malls, industry. apartments, office space. Right. Is it difficult to do that research? Herman, is your job hard? <laughs> it, it, it's fascinating. Say but yes. <laughs> it's fun. I wouldn't say it's hard. It's fun. I've been doing this for a while, so I, I, I feel like I know what I'm, what I'm getting into. But definitely uh, the, the issues that come up quarter after quarter, you know, it, can change. And so the office thing is something that has popped up more frequently after the pandemic. It's been on people's radar screens, but uh, it, 
we're looking for better disclosure across the group. So the challenging part is not everybody discloses their their, their office CRE. So we're trying to coax them to, to do this. So you have to call up IR, you have to call up the CFO and be right. like, dude, come on, give right. me the breakdown. Exactly. Give me the numbers so I can make some assessment. There you go. Herman Chen, senior analyst doing that analyst stuff, you know, which is fun, but not hard. Apparently, fun but not hard. I hope his boss isn't listening. <laughs> exactly. Herman Chan, he's a senior analyst, covers the U.S. regional banks and fintech for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, got, we got some uh, the earnings coming out from the banks uh, and generally, you know, on the margin, uh, better than expected for most of them, including some of the regional banks. So maybe just maybe uh, some of that um, pressure can come out of those uh, those banking stocks. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You know, Matt, I drove my first Kia ever this weekend, the Kia Soul. I rented it when I was out in California, and it was a very oh, good experience. It was pretty cool. It's got some pep in, man. I was flying I down love the, the design. I like the original one. Uh, it, it was like more boxy. Wasn't okay. And I've always, whenever I see him, I point him out to my wife, and she's like, "Yeah, I know a Kia Soul, but I think they're <laughs> so cool looking." Steve Center joins us. He's the COO and EVP of Kia America. Before that, he spent 30 years at uh, Honda, so he knows uh, the car business here. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for joining us here. I, I, again, I had a great experience with my Kia Soul over the weekend, so thanks for that. Give us a sense of just kind of how your business has kind of weathered through the last, you know, two, three, four years with a pandemic and chip shortages and, and demand sputtering here and there. Talk to us about how Kia has performed over the last few years. Well, first of all, thanks for having us on this morning. Um, and uh, renting a soul was my first Kia experience as well. So it I can worked. relate to that. It's a, it's a great little car. You know, it's been a pretty wild ride for the last a few years, and uh, between the, the lockdowns, um, the whole industry absorbed um, probably three or four months' uh, supply of inventory. We've been running on vapors ever since, and uh, Kia's done exceptionally well in that instance. And uh, a lot of it's due to product, you know, the six Ps, product, 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 and product. And demand's been strong. The uh, supply chain is... Uh, immature in some senses, especially on the EV side. And as we 
renew uh, our products and you have more and more tech in them, you're using uh, new chips and there aren't built up inventories of those. So the demand's been strong. We've introduced award-winning uh, cars all around the EV6. The EV6 GT has been oh, yeah. named uh, uh, North American Car of the Year. Um, the Telluride has won awards. It's a whole new brand. We're attracting new customers, yeah. younger, better educated, wealthier. I have to so, say, Steve, for those who don't, uh, I follow the automotive industry very closely, and I work uh, closely with FMI. They manage your fleet here on the East Coast, and so mm -hmm. I test drive at pretty much every car that's out there. Kia has been knocking the cover off the ball really? with the products that, I mean, first thing I noticed a couple years ago was the Telluride, which I think is just a Range Rover killer, and that <laughs> at like a third or a quarter of the price, right? And they, they just... Uh, I think are knockout vehicles and I love driving it as well. Then uh, I got in the um, EV6 GT, which was an unbelievable experience. I mean, the speed that's capable that the, that yeah. vehicle is capable of is just eye-opening. You blow away Porsches off the line <laughs> and you're in a Kia. So it's I think a whole new brand, it's a whole new product offering. I can't wait to drive the EV9, which is the big all-electric SUV. I'm obviously a fanboy. Where do you want to go with this? Because you started out as you know, an affordable Korean brand. And a lot of people, I think, especially back then, were m more xenophobic than they are now. Um, you've got an entirely new image and expectations are, are getting higher and higher and higher for Kia products. Wh where are you aiming um, y your, your range of products? So uh, uh, if, if you had to define us, we want to be a sustainable mobility company. And that's kind of a mouthful, so let me describe that. We're going to expand the product line. Right now we've got a very exciting line of internal combustion uh, powered vehicles, a whole new line coming of electric powered vehicles, which is a whole different experience for people. And we're getting into uh, different types of vehicles like uh, purpose-built vehicles as well. So. Kia celebrating its 30th year uh, as a business in the U.S. this year, and this is just the beginning. It's it's a whole new start for the company uh, and in the marketplace. Are the if sales numbers? Add, are you able to sell? Um, I mean, I assume you sell as many as you produce. Uh, are you hitting new records every year in terms record. of U.S. sale? New records. We've had six or seven sales month records. We almost hit a sales record uh, last year. Uh, we hit a quarter record this year. It's uh, uh, as soon as we can get them, they're sold. Many of our dealers have wait lists of uh, vehicles. So um, as soon as we can make them, they're gone. And as uh, as many as we can make this year will be the new record. It, it, are you are you constrained by the chip and supply chain issues? I mean, I have a buddy who just got a Kia Telluride, and we all followed his journey very closely. <laughs> I think it, he waited eight months to get the vehicle. Are you able to bring that down? We're getting caught up. I, I think everyone has their own supply uh, challenges, and it's it's pretty interesting what pops up that you can't get because of uh, some component. And it's it's mostly chips, but it's other things. But we were able to increase Telluride production over 20% uh, in terms of uh, on an annual run rate, despite all of this. 
So uh, we're working very hard to satisfy the demand that's out there. Well, I, I do notice, and this says it's totally irrelevant point, but it, I noticed it. I like the new logo, the yeah. Kia logo. Dude, I don't think it's irrelevant. I, I think it, it looks awesome. I mean, usually companies screw that up when they update something and they change something, they screw it up. But in Kia, it's a big improvement. So whatever marketing geek at Kia did that, you can give him a pat on the back there. But <laughs> where do you produce your cars, Steve? Are they in Korea, in the U.S.? And are you going to be able to get the IRA? Are you going to be able to get the uh, tax credit? Because I know that's in, been incredibly confusing, but it's probably important to your consumers. Yes, and uh, that's a, a mouthful. So we produce a lot of our uh, products uh, in North America. We have a plant in Mexico, and we have a plant in uh, West uh, Point, Georgia. And we build the Telluride there, the Sorento, the K5, and uh, the Sportage, which is our midsize, our new midsize SUV. And the balance of the cars are sourced uh, from uh, plants in Korea. And um, we announced in August, before the IRA was passed, that we're building the uh, what we call the Meta plant, which is a battery and EV factory just north of Savannah, Georgia. So. Um, we have a, a commitment to build more and more cars here, uh, despite the regulations. So we're doing all the right things. Um, right now, because of the way the IRA was a bit of a, uh, uh, I'll call it a uh, sheet pull. Yeah. You know, we pulled the tablecloth out from under the place settings on everybody. So the cars don't qualify. And I think if you look on the list, it went from 30 or so cars that qualified to maybe nine. But uh, pretty soon they will. And uh, it's very important to our customers to get as good a value as possible. So we're doing all the yep. right things, and right. Uh, it'll take a little time. All right, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, Steve Center, COO and EVP of Kia America. Uh, and again, I drove my first Kia uh, this past Dude, weekend. Dude, I'm telling you, go, go on the uh, Kia.com website and use the configurator to build. Yeah. Some of these vehicles are pretty awesome. All right, pretty cool. I'll take a look. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130 switch gears here. I want to go to our good friends uh, at Fox. Uh, the stock is down 1.7%. Uh, they had an illegal settlement yesterday for like $787 million. Uh, I want to get to the bottom of that. What's that mean for the company? What is that? What kind of, what does that signal about what's happening at Fox? Matt Sheltonhelm, he's a senior litigation analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone uh, to talk to us. So, Matt, talk to us about this settlement and kind of what happened and, and what does it represent to you? Hi, Paul. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, we were on the eve of uh, we were about to begin trial yesterday. And just as the opening statements were were going to begin, um, the attorneys didn't return to the courtroom and, and we had an announced settlement. We expected a settlement before the jury would rule. Uh, but it, this one came in at a little bit steeper price tag than we expected. I think we, we had had ballparked it at five hundred million dollars. And I think Dominion uh drove a stiffer bargain and 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 pushed Fox to settle for $787 million. That equates to about 43% of Fox's um, net income for the year. Um, so it's a big deal for the company. And, and I think it's a big deal as well because there's a second case trailing behind this one. And Fox, Fox isn't done with this yet. So uh, 
but they it seems like they've spent eight hundred million dollars to avoid the embarrassment of having Rupert and Lachlan and Tucker and Hannity Hannity um, you know testify. Are they going to have to spend? that kind of money again? Or is this testimony going to eventually come out? Yeah, so I, I really don't see any way that they don't end up paying at least that for this, this second case. Now, this the, the suit that was settled yesterday was a company called Dominion. The second suit is, is a company called Smartmatic. And, and when, when both of these companies fought, filed their initial complaints, Smartmatic um, was actually seeking much more than Dominion was in terms of, of the damages here. They they sought $2.7 billion in, in lost enterprise value. Dominion was only seeking a billion dollars. And, and so, you know, I, I really do think that you're exactly right that Fox was settling this to avoid the, the spectacle of, of a trial. And it's very difficult to see them um, uh, going ahead with a trial and that would do the same thing um, with the Smartmatic case. So I think it might be facing an even bigger price tag uh, to, to get away from well, that second one. You know, that leads me to two questions. Um, one, is it really billions of dollars worth of embarrassing to have Tucker Carlson and uh, Sean Hannity right. um you know, testify to have Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch testify? Is it, are, are there really that many secrets that they need to keep, uh, you know, $2 billion worth, let's say? Um, or is it worth it to Fox to spend $2 billion to continue to stir up and promote, you know, partisanship and anger? Um, is that part of their brand and, and, they're, and they're making enough money from that part of the brand to keep, to keep on going that direction? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and, and part of me was surprised that they, that Fox let this Dominion case get as far as it did. All, all of a lot of this stuff came out because Fox, you know, Fox could have settled it much earlier, but it let it go ahead to a summary judgment ruling where we saw, you know, a lot of these harmful facts already. I think the con- the concern though is is a trial um, over a couple months with with testimony puts a much larger spotlight on this that might actually start to reach its core audience in a way that might have been, you know, more more disruptive than than just the legal filings on summary judgment. I mean, and as long so, as they don't cover it on Fox, will its core audience ever even find out? That's a good question. That's a good question. But I, I think, you know, the fact that they were willing to settle this one yesterday for, you know, $787 million is not, you know, pocket change. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a real impact. I think it suggests that there is real concern about uh, what that might lead to. Real quick, about 10 seconds, Matt. What's the, what's the timing of the second Okay, so, so yeah, that one's trailing uh, about a year behind. The t- discovery wasn't set to close until July okay. of of next year. So there's time for negotiations there, but I wouldn't expect, you know, it to drag out very long. I I would think there's incentive to settle this sooner rather Especially than later. Especially before we get deeper and deeper into president yeah election. Yep. Yeah. All right, Matt. Right. Uh, thanks for uh, that. Uh, we appreciate your analysis there, Matt. Shettenhelm, he's a senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence following this uh, trial between Fox uh, and some of the voting machine companies. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, 
Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I guess this is time of a big pivot for Netflix. It's going from a story that's driven almost entirely by subscriber growth to now it's focusing on profitability and, and how do they you know, kind of drive profitability. And a couple of levers that they are talking about is this ad-supported tier, as well as cracking down on the nearly 100 million folks who kind of share their credentials. And I'm thinking some share of Share is such a nice word to use. <laughs> it's stealing. <laughs> exactly. Let's, let's face it. And, and I think it may include some of the Sweeney offspring as well. I can't, you know, prove that, but that's my sum- assumption. Thieves. Let's bring in Mark Douglas. He's the president and CEO of uh, Mountain. Mountain is the advertising software company enabling brands to drive measurable conversions, revenue, and site visits. So he's all in on this uh, digital advertising space. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here. What was your takeaway from kind of what we heard from the good folks at Netflix last night as they, again, continue to pivot this company and focus on uh, profitability. Yeah, so the, the good morning. The, the two big nuggets that I kind of took away from that is one is the, if you back up, the big concern is when they introduce their ad business that it would cannibalize their subscription business. And so, like, if they lost 20% of their subscribers said, well, we're going to go for the ad-supported option, but they didn't have the revenue yet to to fill in that gap, that would be a huge problem for Netflix. That didn't happen. The exact opposite happened. It looks like the ad-supported business is completely accretive meaning that it's actually adding entirely new revenue from new subscribers for the most part. And on top of that, they announced, and I think this might have been overlooked by a few people, that they're actually making more revenue per subscriber on the ad-supported business than they are on a subscription business. So that's really? a, a, just a massive opportunity. It has the potential to literally double the size of the company. And it's what, what are the numbers, Mark? Stop, stop right and give us the numbers. Day. What are they making, uh, you know, what does the average Our subscriber food. pay and what does the you know ad supported subscriber pay and and get in terms of ad money right so the the average subscriber plan is is around $15 um they didn't break they just said that they're getting higher than that mm. for the ad supported so they didn't say how much higher but think of netflix they're you know 30 billion plus in revenue the estimates, um, I think pretty educated estimates, are that the ad business is already looking at a $3 billion in the first year. So they're, they're right out the gate with 10% of their revenue um, coming from the ad-supported tier. And again, it not just being subscribers switching from one to another, but being new revenue and and you know essentially higher lifetime value. So I think that's a big opportunity. The issue they're going to have is that the 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 revenue they get from the subscriber actually most of it comes from the the largest brands in the world it comes from the advertisers so that can create a bit of revenue concentration over time and then the other big issue is well you know it's a zero sum game if they're getting money from these advertisers then then that's coming out of Disney's pocket or, or Hulu. Discovery's pocket yeah so so now they're facing a new type of competitor but i think you know with the business opportunity is their ad business in theory could you know double the size of the company over the next few years so it's kind of like a new round of growth from for netflix but also new challenges oh wait who are the big so actually hulu is part of disney right it's yep. yes majority so uh of all the subscription services i guess you've got 
uh, one basket that's Disney, Hulu, uh, and ESPN, whatever. And then I guess another basket would be HBO Max, which is inexplicably dropping the most Matt. recognized part of exactly. that name. Exactly. <laughs> I don't get yeah. that. Uh, yeah. And then the third basket would be Netflix, and the fourth would be Amazon, right? So there are four big competitors out there. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 I have to add to that dig on HBO. I mean, HBO's brand is associated with some of the most iconic moments in entertainment. You know, just being home on a Saturday, Sunday night and watching just, you know, some Game of the of shows and, it, and the drop that brand. It's just I agree with you. It's kind of crazy. But why did they just pay a group of eggheads uh, or knuckleheads, as Paul would say, to make that decision? Like, why would you drop HBO? Is Coke going to change its name? I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. It, it really doesn't. I mean, this is why you should never pay naming experts or hire a naming firm or you can make any data favor whatever decision someone decided they wanted to make. So, I mean, I think I think this is a conversation over a beer <laughs> just you know, because we can both complain about the name change and reminisce about all the great shows we watched on HBO. Exactly. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Hey, Mark, how, how big of an issue or, or an opportunity is this whole password sharing thing? I'm not even sure how they get control of it, quite frankly, but how big of an opportunity is it? Yeah, at the end of the day, it's a price increase. Now, you may frame it in like that there are people that are sharing logins. Like, I, yeah, I, have, I have a friend, I have probably two friends that are using my Netflix login. It's a little annoying because they'll go watch shows I want to watch and I then I can't you. remember if I watched them. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, I feel you, dude. And then they're advancing yeah. the show and I'm advancing the show, so it's a little annoying. So, so it's worth a little money to end that. But at the end of the day, it's a price increase and you don't build companies on price increases. So I think it's gonna you know, add something to the business. But if I'm an investor in Netflix, I'm not going, yeah, I'm really banking on those price increases they're gonna roll out this year. I mean, I, th I think it's it's it will happen but it's it's not the focus the focus netflix is is has you know created most of the innovation i think arguably in in television over the last few years starting with introducing netflix you know with that having dvds and then having it over the internet and the growth is going to come from innovation and the innovation right now is coming from from this new ad tier that they're doing that the price increase from password sharing is like that's for an analyst to put on a spreadsheet that's not like <laughs> to, to look at the stock long term all right, so as someone who helps companies make money in digital advertising, you know, leaving aside what how Hulu and Netflix are doing, what what brands are best positioned to make money on streaming services and how should they do it, Mark? I mean, do they put a bunch of commercials at the beginning? Do they break into the middle of your content? Um, do they build it into the story? Like, what do you advise people? Well, I, I'm I'm very bullish on NBC. I know we haven't mentioned NBC. I think there are a few of the. I work with a lot of big TV networks, and some of them are really big or innovating. So Netflix probably has the biggest innovation opportunity. The ads don't have to be 30 seconds. They have no legacy TV ad business. They Their ad formats, and every new ad business comes with new ad formats. The ads on TikTok are not the same as on Instagram, and the ads on Netflix don't have to be the same as on Disney. So I think they have a huge opportunity. I think NBC, as part of Comcast, um, is uh, more innovative than I think most people realize and has a really big opportunity 
opportunity. So if I was to bet on two companies, it would be those, you know, Peacock, NBC is Peacock and and Netflix. And I think that Disney obviously has a the scale. They have incredible assets in terms of all of the various content they have. Um, but I think maybe they need um, with with the return of Bob Iger, they'll get they'll get a little more focus on on innovation and growth. We should point out that NBC Universal owns a minority stake in Hulu. And Got Walt it. Disney stake owns the majority. I was just trying to figure out where they fit in there. Gotcha. Hey, yeah, Mark, they're, they're, are, yeah. are, are we even going to have an upfront this year? And I, I have great memories of the upfronts where the networks sell a lot of their TV advertising, some great parties. Uh, are we yeah, even going to rem- have it? Remind the kids of what the upfronts yeah, are. Yeah, so the upfronts are when the TV networks will sell, you know, 70 to 80% of their inventory for the upcoming TV season. You get that money upfront so you kind of know what your revenue looks like. And uh, and as a result, the advertisers will get a little bit of a discount buying in the upfront market versus buying it at the time the show airs. So do we? Do they even do that anymore, Mark? do it? Yeah, they're they're still doing it because it's hard for the ad executives, the sales executives to unhook from like I could spend a week and hit half my revenue target this year. But I think you're going to see it decline over time. Um, I think the advertising like there's no no company that's like, yeah, I want to commit a year in advance, especially given how volatile you know the world is economically that I want to commit a year in advance. So I, I think you're going to see a steady decline in upfronts as advertisers demand more flexibility. And quite frankly, you know, the, the, the networks decide why are we giving these discounts? Like, like as long as there's more demand, they have tons of supply, there's tons of demand that we don't need the upfronts in the same way. So you're, you're going to see that start to decline. A lot of people miss the parties and oh, <laughs> stuff like that. That's but, the good you know, stuff. Yeah. yeah, we don't have to feel too bad for them. They'll All be right. fine. All right, Mark. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. As always, love getting the latest from you. Mark Douglas, he's the president and CEO of Mountain. Kind of breaking down a little bit of the uh, earnings coming out of Netflix and maybe the, the upside opportunity there for their advertising-driven tier. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.